All right, um, I'm going to go ahead and get started with a word of prayer. Let's pray. Father God, I love you. Lord Jesus, thank you um, for your awesome sacrifice. Lord Jesus, thank you for your your victory. God, and I pray that you would um, just send your spirit to be with us during this time. God, that you would guide me in what I'm going to say, and that you would uh, give us all just the ability to, to pay attention and to be eager to hear from your word. God, I pray that you would encourage us and challenge us and uh, prepare us to be faithful stewards and faithful ambassadors of your gospel. Um, Lord, love you. In Christ's name, amen. <clears throat> okay. Um, this breakout, uh, sharing the gospel with grace. Really what I want to do is kind of start with the assumption that, um, you know, come to this breakout that you see the need and, and you understand the call of God in our life to um, make disciples and to, you know, taking the Great Commission seriously when Jesus left and he told his disciples to go and to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that he had taught them. Um, and then that since that's been happening, that we've received that message and we've been taught the commands of Christ. And so now we have the, the burden of responsibility to share the gospel. Um, so with that, what I want to do is I, I primarily want to focus on... Um, our attitude and our disposition and the, the way that we go about sharing the gospel, kind of uh, where our heart and our mind is at as we share the gospel with people. And um, first, it would be that um, we share the gospel in gentleness and fear, both gentleness and fear. Gentleness um, towards man um, and fear before God. And so we're really going to kind of unpack those two ideas um, and then... In the last 10 or 15 minutes, what I want to do with this breakout is really then walk through a really quick, brief um, idea of what the whole gospel is, what, what we're really responsible to share with people in gentleness and fear. So, having said that, um, I want to read a passage out of 2 Corinthians chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to start reading um, in verse 14, where Paul says, for the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Um, and we'll look at some of the, the rest of that passage in a minute. He says that the love of Christ controls him. The love of Christ controls him. So obviously that, you know, thinking about what our motivation is and how we come across um, when we share the gospel is first and foremost to understand that if we rightly understand our own salvation... If, if we're personally meditating on the gospel ourselves and the work that Jesus Christ has done in us, um, then we'll be controlled by the love of God. As we look at this, as he goes on to say in this passage, that God gives us this ministry of reconciliation, that God then gives us the burden of responsibility to stand in his place and to preach his gospel, to teach his gospel to people, 
um, then first, first and foremost, to, to see that we need to be controlled and under the influence and do this out of the love of God. Um, as he says further on in this passage, um, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you or we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Um, so to literally stand in the place of God as if God himself is begging people through us that they would be reconciled. Um, and so we approach that with the love of Christ. And he, sa- he goes on to say this, because we no longer regard anyone according to the flesh. We no longer regard anyone according to the flesh. He says, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, but we thus regard him no longer. What he's saying is there's a point, there was a point in his life when he just saw Jesus as another man. In fact, a man that he, he hated and he wanted to destroy the work of Christ, that he hated Christianity because he saw it as a perversion to Judaism, his religion. But when he met Christ personally and Christ saved him and, and brought him to repentance and faith, he no, no longer regarded Jesus as just a man. And so what he's saying is because of that, because of his personal relationship with Christ that totally transformed him, he now doesn't consider anybody just according to the flesh. He doesn't consider anybody just according to what he sees on the surface. Um, and so I think that's a really, for me, it's a really important idea that when I meet people, that when I interact with people, that I'm not just dealing with uh, another person. I'm not just dealing with somebody's personality. Oh, do I think this person's funny? Uh, does this, do I like his personality? Do I want to hang out? Is this somebody I want to be friends with? Is she cool? You know, is she athletic? Um, what, what, you know, what can I get out of this, this interaction? That's not how I should think about a person when I meet them. My, my thought should be this person is an eternal being created in the image of God, but because sin is in the world, they're fallen and separated from God and an object of his wrath. Or this person is a child of God and my brother and sister in Christ. And so I can encourage them and be encouraged by them in the faith. Does that make sense? So that as believers, we should not see people just for what's on the surface. But we should really think about people on a deeper level. Either this person is my brother and sister in Christ or this person is lost and underneath the wrath and condemnation of a holy, just God and will spend eternity separated from God in hell apart from the gospel. Um, so, being controlled by the love of Christ. And, and again, this is all going to come back to like, the only way that we'll have that mindset is if we continue to renew our mind to the gospel. To have our mind renewed by the scriptures. To focus on the person and work of Jesus. And, and as we do that for our own life, what Christ has done for us will be controlled by his love. And then we'll no longer see other people as just human beings, but we'll see them as eternal beings, either our brothers and sisters in Christ or the enemies of God who need the gospel. Um, does that make sense? Good. So with that comes this huge burden of responsibility. And, and I want us to think about that for a minute, the weight of being... a an ambassador for Jesus, the weight of having this ministry of reconciliation that God gives us um, as believers, that it's, it should be our greatest joy um, to be able to share the gospel with other people, but also to feel the weight of this. 
that we stand in the place of God in somebody's life to share the gospel. And I don't know, you know, depending on how much you've read through the scriptures, I don't know if you've picked up on the fact that in the scriptures, especially in the New Testament, the harshest, harshest language in the New Testament is reserved for false teachers. The most, like, the, the scariest judgment talk in the New Testament is, revert, is uh, reserved for people who pervert and twist the gospel, who lead people astray, false teachers. And so, and, and James says, right, James says, not, let not many of you become teachers because there's a stricter judgment. You know, and he's primarily talking about, you know, preaching ministries and teachers in the church. But for any of us that we're, as believers, we're all called to share the gospel and to make disciples and to teach them the things that Jesus has taught us. And so we carry that responsibility too. And so this is something where we have to be, we have to prepare ourselves with the gospel of peace. We have to be prepared with it. We need to know what we believe. Um, and having said that, I want to read a, a, pa- that, a passage out of 1 Peter, chapter 3, where he says this. Um, and I'll start in verse 13. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Listen, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for, the, for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. What I wanna, the first thing I want to look at is that he says, always be prepared to make a defense for anyone who asks you, or to, to give an answer for what you believe. Okay, basically, and, and what's really cool is who, the people that Peter is talking to are believers who are being like physically persecuted for the for their religion, for following Christ, um, being thrown in prison, people being killed for the gospel. And he's saying, listen, he's assuming that they're living in such a way that kind of how Kahuna was talking about this morning, that not that we're weird, but we're different, that we live lives set apart to the gospel no matter what the cost. And so people will see that and be drawn to Christ. As he said, you know, if I'm, if I'm lifted up, I'll draw men to myself. Um, so if he, if we're exalting him in how we live, he's going to draw people to himself that they'll actually ask us why we believe what we believe, which is a really cool thought. Um, but Peter says, listen, be ready to give an answer, to make a defense for what you believe. So what I want to say about that first is that, First and foremost, that means that you and I need to know what we believe for ourselves. Um, that we need to really have meditated on the gospel, to memorize the gospel, to think through the gospel, to be able to, to the point where we know it firmly ourselves, so that we're able to communicate it clearly to somebody who doesn't believe. Um, let me read this about making a defense. The believer must understand what he believes... And why he is a Christian. And then be able to clearly communicate the Christian faith humbly, thoughtfully, reasonably, and biblically. I think most, and just in my limited experience, but what I've seen in the churches in this country, the Christians in this country, most Christians seem only to be able to share the gospel with somebody who already knows the gospel. 
They can only communicate the gospel enough to where another believer would really understand what they're talking about. You know what I mean? Does that make sense? You know, we can throw out some some one-liners about Jesus or maybe some cliche catchphrases, you know, we've heard growing up in church. But when it comes to explaining the gospel to somebody who hasn't had the background that we have in the church, we really don't know how to explain the gospel. We just know how to throw out a couple facts about Jesus. Um, but even then, unless we break it down, like because if you just walk up to somebody or a, a family member or a friend and the opportunity arises for you to share the gospel, but all you're prepared to do is to say, well, yeah, I mean, Jesus loves you and he died for you. And, and he, you know, wants you to go to heaven. He's got a plan for your life. You know, that, that's a large part of the gospel that's packed into that, those few words. But the person that you're talking to, maybe the only Jesus they really have ever heard of is the Jesus of the History Channel. He was a good teacher, good dude, and he died. Sure, they killed him for his religious beliefs. But end of story. The disciples made up some stuff about him rising from the dead. That's just superstition. You know, and then Paul came along and added a bunch of stuff about him being God and Jesus never really claimed to be God. And maybe that's the only Jesus they know of. So if you just say to him, hey, Jesus loves you. Oh, a guy, a good teacher who lived 2000 years ago loves me. Okay, that's strange. Do you feel what I'm saying? Maybe, you know, they're Mormon or Jehovah Witness or um, Muslim. Totally Totally different belief system on who Jesus is. So it's really, what I'm saying is, it's really important that you and I can clearly and thoughtfully and reasonably share with somebody from Scripture the gospel. To be able to give a biblical answer defense for what we believe. And then to be able to break it down to the point where a a person without the background that we have can understand it. Um, It's huge. So, being able to make a defense... And I say one, um, this is so important for us as believers because even in our, in, in our own minds, in our own flesh, there'll be times of doubt and, and times of uh, when our, our faith will come under attack from other people, other sources, maybe a professor in college or something you watch on TV that attacks um, the validity of the Bible or the scriptures or what we believe about Jesus. And if we're not prepared, if we really haven't set the time aside necessary to know the gospel for ourselves, that can really shake our faith and throw us into a season of doubt. And that's not necessary if we prepare ourselves with the gospel. Um, Okay, so he goes on to say, Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. This is where I want to camp out for a minute, because he says to do it with gentleness and respect. So to be able to share the gospel boldly, to stand on the authority of the word of God, to not shrink back from saying hard things to people, to being able to talk about the holy, just character of God. And their personal sin and their, the reality that they deserve hell. To be able to say those things. To be able to stand boldly and proclaim that we believe Jesus is God. That he was born of a virgin, taking on human flesh, never sinned, never yielded to temptation, lived a perfect life, died on the cross and rose again. And say these things that are, that are hard to believe, that are supernatural, but say them authoritatively and boldly but not obnoxiously. 
so that when we when we approach people with the gospel that we do it in gentleness and respect the word gentleness here it, it's really um the word meekness now i think brody might have mentioned this last night i wasn't able to be in there but what what comes to your mind when i say the word meek to be meek what 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 jumps in your mind what are some definitions humble that's a good one what else like just the way that people use it today what do they usually mean if they say somebody's meek submissive weak passive yeah like these are the things that jump into my mind when somebody says oh he's a meek guy i'm like ooh low blow so he's weak and passive and um this one time uh, a friend of mine um this guy was referring to me he said oh yeah he's kind of a mousy kind of guy he's like he's real meek and i was like oh mousy Ooh, that doesn't sound very manly um, and that's kind of like the way the connotation that the word meekness is, is really taken on in our culture, but it's really, really far away from what it means scripturally and in the Bible or what even, the, you know, in this translation, gentleness, they're really powerful words. Meekness is a powerful word in the scriptures. Um, literally, it could be translated like power under control. And it's the idea that in, in this passage, even though we stand on a platform of authority, of having the authority of the word of God behind the words that we say to people, that we don't like lord it over them or, or beat them over the head with it or, you know, try to force them to submit to it by our own power, um, that we don't do that, that we're meek with it. Um, the way that I, I think about this is in my I have a two year old daughter. Her name is Molly Jean. She weighs, I don't know, 20-something pounds. You think? Somewhere in there. She's little. Um, she's losing her baby fat, which is sad. Um, regardless. All right. So I'm in a position of authority over her life as her dad, right? That God's put me in a position to be an authority figure, to disciple her, to show her who Christ is. Um, and so when she disobeys, I'm... I have to to deal with that. I have to speak truth to her, and in some instances, like punish, not punish, but discipline her. Um, and so when I do that, I'll walk into her room if she's been, you know, disobedient to her mom, or you know, maybe like sometimes she'll, you know, feel kind of froggy and will take a shot at one of us if if we don't give her what she wants. So I walk into her room and I grab her by her overalls and I'll sling her into the wall, and then I'll get up on her dresser. And I'll, and I'll bring rain down the elbows on her to start right on the sternum. Just crush it. No, I don't do that, right? That's awful. Some of you are like calling DSS. Hey, I got to report them. No, don't call. I don't beat my daughter. I don't, I don't use my, from my position of authority in her life, I don't, I don't just let my power go crazy on her. My, the power that I have over her, both verbally and physically, that's under control, Right? It's under control. I, I take her and I sit her on the edge of her bed and I get down on my knees and I look into her eyes and I real gently and, and as meekly as I know how I explain to her what she did was wrong and, and why, why discipline is going to happen. And then after that discipline takes place, I love her and we play and it's awesome. Um, it makes me miss her right now. No. Um, so, you know, I come from this place of authority in her life, but I do it with, I speak to her in meekness, gently, right? Boldly, I don't shrink back. I'm not like, well, now, Molly, 
I know you wanted that milk bad, but mom said no. So next time you punch her, just don't punch her in the eye, okay? Can you just hit her in the jaw maybe? It's not so painful. No, I, I speak boldly. I, I, I show the authority that I have, and I speak truth to her, but I do it gently. Is that making sense? And so when we come to somebody with the gospel, being controlled by the love of Christ in humility and lowliness and meekness, but boldly and powerfully, we speak the truth, but we do it in such a way that we don't exalt ourselves as some sort of standard of righteousness to repel people or to beat them over the head as if we've got to get them into submission, but we in love share the truth with them as gently as possible because the reality is that if we're going to tell somebody that they're sinners and they deserve hell, we better have a firm grasp on the fact that we're sinners and we deserve hell. But Christ in his grace and his mercy and his love has rescued us. And so now we're offering them that same hope. Does that make sense? It's really, it's really big. Um, what time is it? Uh, it don't matter. Um, one of the first times I, went, I, I was going to a church and we were doing an evangelistic training thing, I was a young believer, maybe a year and a half old in Christ. And I went out to share the gospel with this guy. And I was, I was excited because, you know, I wanted, I was doing it at work, but I didn't really, I was learning the gospel, but really didn't know how to go about it. I was mostly just sharing my testimony. So I went out with this guy, uh, me and this uh, friend of mine, to share the gospel with people um, who had visited our church. And those people weren't home. So he's like, well, let's just go out. We'll go to, uh, look, there's no one really at Subway. We'll go share with the people at Subway. And we walked into this subway, and there was a kid that was maybe 16 or 17 years old. And I, I stood really just in horror as this guy from my church browbeat him and forced him into saying a prayer where it was perfectly obvious that this guy would have said that he worshipped chickens to get us to leave. Like he would have prayed to the chicken god as long as we left. But he, he got him to bow his head and to say a prayer and then we left. And I was just, I mean, it was, it was awful. It was the most, it was one of the most horrible events in my, my relationship as being a Christian that I had ever witnessed. And we left. And then the guy, you know, and he was a seminary graduate, like trying to get a job at the church. And he looked at me and was like, well, I don't know if that was real, but, but he said the prayer. And, you know, I believe that, you know, just went in this whole thing. And I was like, that was awful. There's no way that was real. He just wanted us to leave. Um, you know, and that happens all too often where if we have a wrong perspective on who has the power to save people, if we think that that it's our job to get somebody saved, we'll go about it all wrong. But if we understand in the scriptures that only God has the power over life and death, that only only the Holy Spirit can bring somebody to repentance and faith, and our responsibility is to simply share the truth in love and humility and boldly and we stand we we preach the gospel we teach the gospel we share the gospel and then the rest of it is in the hands of the holy spirit um to bring somebody to repentance and faith does that make sense so we don't have to force anybody into anything we beg and we plead and, and, and we tell them the urgency of it but we don't we don't force anybody's hand we don't manipulate all right um so with gentleness and respect and which leading into that respect here, really it's the word fear. Um, the, the real definition for it is fear, dread, or terror. That which, um, causes terror to arise. Um, so why, why would he say this? Why would he say 
okay, share the gospel, be able to clearly communicate the gospel to people, but do it with meekness, but also with fear. Why would we fear as we share the gospel? Why would there be fear involved? Say the wrong thing, thing? right? Because who do we have to answer to? God, right? This isn't being fearful of the people that we're sharing with. He doesn't want us to be afraid of what they may do if we share the gospel. He's not, you know, consistently, he, you know, he's just got done saying, like, don't be afraid of what men will do to you if, if you suffer for righteousness sake. That's fine. It's, he's talking about having a fearful attitude before God because we're handling the very words of God, the oracles of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ. We represent Jesus to people. And that's a huge responsibility. And so we should do that with fear so that we, we need, and, 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 but that fear, this needs to be a healthy fear, a fear that doesn't drive us away from sharing the gospel, a fear that doesn't drive us away from talking about God, but a fear that drives us into preparation to study and to know the gospel, to really be prepared to share it. Okay. Um, now, as I say that, like, I, I'm not saying that you can't share the gospel with somebody until you go to Bible college and seminary and are able to, you know, get a doctorate in gospel sharingology. Like, that's not what I'm saying. Um, because even now, wherever you're at with your, in your relationship with Christ, you can share what Jesus is doing in your life. And you can share truth. And what's awesome is, like I said before, that Jesus, that God is the one in control of people's salvations. And that God is gracious. And in my personal testimony, he, he brought me to salvation through a guy who I, I believe isn't even a, he's a heretic. He's a, a perverter of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But the night that I came home and turned on the television, God used the scripture that he was reading from to bring me to repentance. Because God's in control of all that. And so he can, he'll, he'll use us where we're at. But as Christians, our responsibility is to prepare ourselves, to stand in, in fear before God of handling his message and, and talking about who Christ is. And so that drives us to study and to meditate on it and to memorize it and to think through how we share with people in different circumstances and scenarios. Um, so, any, anybody have any thoughts so far? I'll stop here because we're about to make a little transition. Any thoughts, questions? Okay. Um, so with this being, you know, the background of how we want to approach people with the gospel, um, with this kind of humility and meekness, but also fear and reverence before God, um, I want to walk through just an, briefly the gospel message. Because here's, here's the danger that I see, is that a lot of believers are prepared to share a, a, a half gospel um, that... And really out of a good desire, people want to see family and friends and strangers. They want to see them come to know Christ and to be saved. And so, but they're not really prepared with the whole gospel. And so they just think, well, what, I don't want to like push somebody away from Christ. So what do I love about Jesus that would be attractive or enticing to get somebody to come to my church or to say this prayer or, you know, whatever. Um, what, what do I want to share? And so people will focus in on the love of God and the blessings of salvation. But they'll use the blessings of salvation more as like bait thrown out there at the beginning to get somebody to come to Christ. 
Um, and the problem with that is that it, it, it's really a perversion of the gospel. It's a half gospel because in order, this is big, in order for somebody to truly come to Christ for salvation, they first need to see their need for salvation. That makes sense, right? And in order for somebody to see their need for salvation, their sin has to be exposed to them. And in order for a person to have their sin exposed to them, they first need to see God for who He truly is. Because it's as we're exposed to the character and nature of God from Scripture that we'll see ourselves as, as sinners against Him. And then we'll be driven out of fear to a point of, of recognizing that we need somebody to rescue us. And then we can embrace Jesus for all that He is and all that He's done. Um, so when I share the gospel with somebody, you know, it, there's times when you know it may be brief and you really don't have a lot of time to say something to somebody. But if I can sit down with a family member or a friend or on an airplane um, or with a student here at camp, I always start with the fact that, listen, the Bible teaches us that God is our creator. And I stand on the authority of God's word. And I start with the fact that, listen, God made you. The Bible teaches us that he made us in his image. And because of that, he, he owns us. We belong to him. And because of that, we are morally responsible to God for how we live. God's our creator. He owns us. And that God is holy. That God is holy. What does that mean when I say God's holy? Set apart. Right. Set apart from what? Sin. Yeah. He's set apart from creation because he alone is the creator. And he's set apart from sin because he, he can't have anything to do with it. God, by his, the essence of who he is, he's, he's righteous and holy and pure. And sin is the opposite of that. It's an attack against his very character and nature. First um, John says that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Right? Gives us this really cool picture of how the holiness of God can't have anything to do with the sinfulness of man. That just as light and darkness cannot exist in the same space at the same time, God can't have anything to do with sin. It's, a, it's actually it's a personal attack against his very character, against his nature. He's holy. He won't have anything to do with it. So God is our creator, and he's holy, and he's just. When we say God is just, um, we're saying that, that God, um, when we say God is righteous, these two words are really cl- closely tied together. If you say God is righteous, what we're saying is that God always does what is right, and that he himself is the standard of what right is. That what's right flows from the character and nature of God. That if we know anything about right and wrong, it's because it's been revealed from the character of God. And then when we say he's just, what we're saying is that he always holds us accountable to that standard. As creatures made in the image of God, he holds us accountable to that standard. And so you see what, I mean, as, as we can stand in from Scripture, show people that who God is and reveal to them the character and nature of God, this is going to begin to reveal to them their own sinful condition and how serious it is. Um, that uh, In the Psalms, it says that God has prepared a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. That it's been appointed for man once to die, Hebrew says, and then to face judgment. And that God's judgment is apart from Christ, is without mercy. 
and it's just, it's right, it's good. Um, I was talking to a lady one time, and uh, I was sharing the gospel with her. I, 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 we worked in the same building. This is about, I don't know, seven or eight years ago now, but it just always stands out in my mind when I get to this point. Because I was walking through the gospel with her, and we were, I was talking about the just character of God. And she said, I, I, just, I just don't believe that God's like that. I don't believe that, you know, if God were really like that, then a lot of people are going to go to hell. And I said, I said, yeah, that's what the Bible teaches us, that a lot of people reject the gospel, and because of their sin, they'll, they'll go to hell. They'll pay for their sin. She said, I just I can't believe in a God like that. She said, I don't believe in a God like that. She said, my God, you know, is understanding and forgiving and, and loving. And... and as as boldly but with as much meekness as I as I could, I, I looked at her and I said, the, the the problem here is that you that that your God doesn't exist. I said, You've made up, you've created your own God in your own mind. And you've created a God in your image that you, that's okay with what you want to do and what you want to believe. I said, I mean I said, does it even make sense that everybody could do that? Could there be a, a real God for everyone that we all think of and imagine and that God really exists for us? And she said, no. I said, well, I said that I'm, what I'm sharing with you is, is from the Scriptures, and that's the authority I stand on. This is God's Word. I said, the only way for humanity to understand who God is is for Him to reveal Himself to us because we're fallen. We're messed up. I said, and, and, and we had talked enough to know that, yeah, this is a broken place, and we, people do bad things. And because of that, you know, without God revealing himself to us, we're lost here. We don't know. We don't know who God is. And so from the authority of God's word, I confronted that idea and was able to say, listen, there is one true living God. And it does not matter what you believe about him. It won't change anything. So there is one true living God and he is just. He is going to judge the world in righteousness because he hates sin and he's offended by it personally. So then when I share the gospel with somebody, it's, it's really important that it just doesn't become like a theological discussion as far as sharing ideas about who God is, but it's got to be personal. And so at this point, I'll talk about our condition as human beings, that we come from Adam and Eve who sinned, who fell. And because of that, we're born sinners and we sin out of a, a sin nature. And, and, and that's obvious and evident because God gives us his standard of what right is, and we, we fall short. We sin. We fall short of the righteous demands of God. And I'll do that by showing them just through the law. And sometimes I'll just use myself as an example, and you can bank on the fact that people are prideful and selfish. And so they, whatever you say about yourself, they think about it for themselves too. Um, but I'll, And sometimes, I'll, though, I'll just... Uh, share it directly with them and say, listen, if you, you know, you're saying that you believe you're basically a good person and that God's going to love you and accept you, like, you know, have you ever told a lie? Yeah, okay, well, that's sin. Have you ever committed adultery? No. Okay, well, Jesus said if you look at a woman to lust, you've committed adultery already in your heart. Then yes, right? You know, and, and when I do that, I say, me too. Man, I, I'm guilty. Like, I, I have sinned against God. And over and over again in the Scriptures, especially in Revelation, it says that God's judgment 
is according to what we have done. That he holds us accountable to the works that we've done, the sin that we've committed. And we're all guilty. The Bible says that there's none righteous, that there's none who do good, that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and that the wages of our sin is death. And Jesus talks about hell as a place of eternal punishment. Eternal and it's so important here to, to, to reveal to them how seriously God takes sin. He's not joking around about it. Like in our culture and even in the church, sin's just a joke. It's something that we pay money to go be entertained by as people act it out. And so we don't, in the church, we don't have a right perspective on the holiness of God. As we laugh at people who take his name in vain and make money off of sexual perversion. And we laugh at it, and it's a joke, so we don't take it seriously in our own life, and we don't take it seriously in, in the lives of people who are lost and who are going to go to hell for it. And we need to pull back from that and be sober-minded and to see from Scripture that God is holy, and He's just, and He will judge sin, and hell, that sin is so serious that people spend eternity in hell paying for it. That's how holy God is. That's how much He hates sin. And that's how terrible of a situation people are in. And so we need to be bold and share the truth and share with them, listen, your sin will bring about eternal wrath. It's already on you. That's what you're waiting for. The Bible teaches us that apart from Christ, we're spiritually dead. We're just awaiting damnation. But in light of that now, now when we get to the love of God, in that context, because if you just throw the love of God out at the beginning of a conversation, hey, man, I want you to know Jesus loves you, you've ripped the love of God out of its context, and you've made it nothing more than just human sentiment. And it really doesn't mean anything different than I love my mom, or I love my dog, or I love pizza. You can just leave it for them to decide how they want to view the love of Christ. But in this context, in the context of God being creator and holy and just and us being sinful and deserving of hell. And now we say, but God is love. And he demonstrates that love to us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ came and died for us. That this God himself, through the virgin birth, took on human flesh. That God became a man in his love for us and his desire to rescue us from his wrath he took on humanity. This is how we see the love of God. This magnifies the love of God. This is, if you're a believer, this is what we need to meditate on daily. That God's love is so great towards us. This is the love that should control us and to motivate us to preach the gospel. That Christ takes on flesh. That Jesus is fully God and fully man. And the same God whose wrath we deserve... He comes, humbles himself to being a real human being, being born of a virgin, right? Where, where we can clearly see that Jesus is fully man because he has an earthly mother, but that he's fully God and that he's holy, that he's born sinless, unlike you and me. The big deal here is where the angel Gabriel comes to Mary and says, hey, you're going to have a kid. And she says, hey, I've never had sex. And he says, hey, it's our, I'm paraphrasing. Um, he says, it's all right. What's going to happen here is the Holy Spirit is going to overshadow you. And because of that, the child to be born will be called holy. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to be flippant with the scriptures there. I, that may have been sacrilegious. I'm, I apologize. The angel comes to Mary and says, you're going to have a child. You're going to have the Messiah. 
And she says, how can this be? I've never known a man. I've never had sex. And the angel explains to her, the Holy Spirit, the third person in the Trinity, is going to overshadow her. And so Jesus is born without the sin that you and I are. So we can clearly see that he's God. And so Jesus is born, lives a sinless life, always obeys the Father. In so doing, listen, he earns a righteousness for you and me. This is big. It's more than just Jesus taking away our sin. It's also him supplying the righteous life that you and I lack. And Jesus does that for 33 years. He earns a righteousness for you and me. And then he goes to the cross and he humbles himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. And the sufferings of the cross are beyond comprehension. But more than the the physical sufferings of being scourged and whipped, and nailed to a cross to, to die by asphyxiation. What's going on there is when Jesus says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We know that the Father pours out his wrath on the Son, and Christ alone takes on our sin. That passage we read from uh, Corinthians. God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin for us, so that we could become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus embraces God's wrath by taking our sin upon himself, but he makes what the Bible calls atonement or propitiation for it, that he satisfies God's wrath. Well, would it taken you or me all of eternity to pay for in hell? Jesus takes once for all, for all those who, to, to send the, the gospel message out, that whosoever would believe can be saved because he has satisfied God's wrath for them. That's amazing. That's the power of the gospel is the life, death, and resurrection of Christ that Jesus said, listen, no one takes my life from me. I have the power to lay it down and the power to take it back up. And he does just that. Three days later, he rises again so that Paul could say, listen, go and preach the gospel. How will people be saved unless somebody tells them the gospel? So go and preach it to your family, to your friends, to strangers. One day, Lord willing, overseas to take it to a people group who have never heard it. And how will they do that? And we call them to, to confess that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is God, and to believe in their heart that he was raised from the dead, and then they can be saved. I'm walking through this, and, and my desire is, as, as I'm doing this, that, that mostly what's going on in your brain is, I need to know how to explain this. I need to know how to walk through this. I need to get in the scripture. I need to get with my youth pastor. I need to get with my pastor and know how to walk through the gospel, how to clearly articulate it to somebody who doesn't know Christ. Let's no longer be satisfied to leave a track on a toilet bowl cover. Not saying don't do that, but let's not leave it there and think, okay, God, I did my, my, my service as an ambassador, as a minister of reconciliation. Let's move past that. Let's no longer be satisfied just to throw out four spiritual principles of information. Let's be prepared with the whole gospel to feel the weight, to stand before God in fear of not sharing the whole truth with somebody and to share it in love and humility, to be able then to preach this message that we just walked through and then call people to repentance and faith, to call them to turn from themselves to, re, to really renounce themselves as a sinner, but to explain that you can't save yourself, that it's by God's grace alone. So you need to embrace and trust in the person and work of Jesus, not blind faith, but faith that rests upon the Jesus revealed in the word of God. All right. 
And at that point, now we can talk about the blessings of salvation with somebody. That we can say, listen, Jesus does love you and he does have a plan for your life. And he wants to give you hope and peace and joy and eternity with him. But share that in the context of, but in this life, you will experience those things, but you'll experience them in the midst of suffering and persecution if you follow Jesus. Because that is what Jesus promised those who would follow him. And people who wanted to follow Jesus, but weren't willing to suffer with Jesus, he sent them away. People who weren't willing to repent, he sent them away. Read through the gospel accounts. He sent, Jesus sends people away. He doesn't get them just to say a prayer. It's not what it's about. It's about following Christ, dying to ourselves, that this free gift of God, this salvation that's free, that Jesus pays for, cost us our lives if we're really going to follow him. And people need to know that up front. Jesus makes a big deal about counting the cost of what it means to follow him. I've, I've gone long, and I, cause, but, but again, I, I pray. My prayer for you is that this session is all it's done. If all of it's done is motivate you to go study the gospel, good. Do it. We need to be prepared. We need to put down our video games. We need to get off Facebook. You need to quit texting before your stinking thumbs fall off. And set aside time to meditate on the gospel for your own personal growth and holiness. And so that you know how to give a clear biblical answer to what you believe and why you believe it. All right. I'm going to pray. If you have any questions, please come ask me.